right, so we are recording. Uh, welcome, everybody, to the Angel Investing Podcast. Uh, this is a show where we interview uh, stock market gurus, investment experts, and we get their insights and ideas about the market. Uh, you know, things like major macro trends, market shifts, uh, strategy, top stock picks. Today's guest is Jason Williams. Uh, Jason is a ex-Wall Street banker. He's, uh, I guess you could kind of consider him a reformed, uh, he has reformed his way into the Main Street space. So uh, Jason has an expertise in passive income investing, uh, private equity investing for retail, and he connects Main Street investors with uh, private equity deals and situations. So companies that are looking to raise money, uh, they go to Jason, and Jason connects them with, uh, with Main, Street, uh, Main Street investors. And that's going to base, basically be the big focus of today's conversation. Uh, before we bring Jason into the conversation, though, quick disclaimer first. Uh, nothing that we say here should be taken as personal uh, investment advice. We trust our readers and our audience to make investment decisions uh, that are the best for them. At Angel Publishing, it is uh, one of our you know, big pushes, or one of the big things that we believe in is empowering people with uh, insights and ideas and strategies so that people can make the best investing decisions for themselves. So with that all out, that all out of the way, uh, let's welcome Jason Williams to the podcast. Jason. Hey, thanks, Jason. <laughs> uh, I, I think it might be a good place to start if we uh, kind of, if you give us a background about, you know, how you initially got into the investing world. I know that you used to, you know, work for, you know, Wall Street, and then kind of, you know, what brought you into the the newsletter space, and you know, why, why did you, why did you quit? You know, sure, take, that take sounds it from great. There. That sounds great. First off, I would like to start by saying that is an awesome shirt you have there, oh, and also a that. great name that you have. And we did not plan to have both the same name and the same shirt on today. Uh, it's just a happy coincidence. <laughs> um, but as Jason said, um, I got my start in Wall Street. Uh, I worked for one of the bigger investment banks in the world, uh, Morgan Stanley. I started off there, you know, sort of at pretty much at the bottom rung of the company and uh, relatively quickly worked my way up to the point where I was leading a team that was responsible for uh, a lot of the trades of our North American sales desks. So, you know, we were doing uh, multi-billion dollar trades with people like the the government of Singapore. You know, uh, before, I like to say before eight in the morning, you know, we, we, we move more money than, you know, most banks, you know, see in their lifetime. Um, it was really impressive what we did. And it was just, uh, it was sort of, um, I was like to say that it was a uh it was it was just an introduction. It was like it was like a, a a master's degree or a doctorate in how to make money because you know our clients were some of the richest people in the world. You know you're talking about Elon Musk was even a client of of Morgan Stanley when I worked there. Uh, Texas oil magnates. Um, you know we did business with even you know the Saudi princes and stuff. I mean just about anybody. And you know being behind the scenes, getting to see them, uh, you know run IPOs for people. Uh, we we led the Facebook IPO. Um, you know, and I sort of saw behind the scenes of how everything worked and, and really how, you know, at, at those investment banks, we always made sure that our, our clients had a way to win. And a lot of times that was at somebody else's expense. And usually it was at retail investors expense. And so that was sort of what led me to leave Wall Street. You know, Morgan Stanley was great. I learned a lot. I met a lot of great people. I mean, I literally got lessons from all of the top experts in their fields when I was there. But, you know, my... <clears throat> 
my background, my, my family is a little bit more, um, I don't know, my, my mom, she was, a, she was a teacher, and she retired from being a teacher to become a priest. You know, my dad uh, worked for a company helping design and test pharmaceuticals. My sister helps design buildings that, um, you know, have better workspaces and make people's lives, you know, more uh, better at work, you know. So, like, basically everybody in my family is doing things to help other people, and here I was on Wall Street making rich people richer. And yeah, you know, it, it, it was nice for my bank account and, and my pocketbook got fatter. But, you know, I just couldn't I couldn't go to work every day knowing that that we were making these people that didn't really need our help more money. And and oftentimes, you know, we were taking that money right away from the people who really did need our help. And so that's what led me to leave Wall Street. And I started my own family office and started, you know, using what I learned uh, at Morgan and, uh, you know, the strategies that I developed, the connections that I developed there, the network of, of people that I've met um, to make my own investments and sort of manage, uh, help manage money for some of my friends and, and family. And that was what uh, eventually led me to Angel Publishing. You know, I, I uh, met the owners of Angel Publishing. And we got to talking about why they had founded the company and sort of their goal with the company and everything just lined up. I mean, you know, they started this company, as you said, to help empower retail investors. And that's exactly what I left Wall Street to do. So, you know, it was just uh, it, it was a no brainer to, to combine forces. Yeah. So and now you're running like what, four different investment advisories? Four. You're, yep. Four. You're, you're juggling a lot. Uh, I do want to ask you more about those. But first, maybe we could. Uh, you know, give the listeners a little bit of a little bit of juice, something to work with. Um, the market's a little bit volatile right now, and I kind of want to hear from you. What are some of your top investments, investment ideas at the moment, uh, and then maybe some areas that you think like people should be staying away from? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Definitely. No. And and you 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 couldn't have put it better. The market is definitely a little volatile. Uh, that might be an understatement. It's been a rough couple of weeks for people um, recently, and uh, you know. Uh, more and more you're seeing headlines about everybody being more and more certain that we're headed towards a recession, you know, stagflation, um, and, and some of these things that people were saying a couple of years ago and getting laughed at for. Um, and they're sort of all starting to come true. And it's definitely a scary time to be an investor. But I mean, like my number one piece of advice is always don't panic. Don't panic. You know, that's one of the hardest things in investing is to take emotion out of it. But emotional investors lose money. And you don't want to be an investor that loses money. You know, that's the whole that's that's the opposite of the point of investing. Yeah, well, we see I mean, we see these cycles time and time again, and it's pretty clear when is a good time to invest. And that's when, you know, people are absolutely terrified and selling everything. Oh, but definitely. Definitely. I, I do think it's difficult to convince people that, you know, oh, it's hard. It's hard. I mean, you know, I, you could think of it as, uh, as maybe being, uh, you know, in the military, you know, being at war and uh, you're trying to stick to your guns while everybody else is running for cover. Sure. You know? I mean, it, it's it seems like you might want to run for cover, but really you should stick to your guns because you're. You know, you're going to be you're going to be so much better off for that. Um, but as far as, you know, investments that I really like now, um, honestly, I'm in that camp of, of you know, the, the potential for stagflation, you know, where we have a sort of stagnant economy that's not really growing, potentially even shrinking a little bit, um, but definitely not growing. But we've got inflation that continues to, to get worse and worse. And in uh, in times like that, I love hard, hard assets. And I'm not one to quote Jim Cramer ever. 
Um, but sometimes he says you should buy companies that own stuff and make things. Yep. And and this is one of those times, you know, companies that own real estate, companies that, um, you know, that, that own uh, uh, facilities and factories, you know, companies that have hard assets. And investing in, in those hard assets yourself, like commodities, um, you know, oil, gas, um, those aren't really, you know, the favorite ones and probably not great long-term investments. But in the short term, you know, those things, they're, they're priced in dollars and dollars are, are losing their value. So those things are going to go up in value just as much as the dollars lose their value. Okay. Um, so I really like those. Um, and, and honestly, all the time, like you said, I'm, I'm, one of my specialties is passive income and I, I in income portfolio is just the best thing that anybody can have in any market. You know, in good times, you get the capital appreciation as the stocks go up and you get dividends paid out to you. Um, and in bad times, you know, you get that cash to sort of cushion any falls and to also give you extra money to, to buy these like discounted stocks when you see them. You know, um, you've got great companies out there. Uh, I'll throw a big name out there. Apple, you know, Apple's just getting beat up. Amazon's gotten beat up, but those aren't companies that are really going anywhere you know so so these are companies that if you've got you know a, a 24 month or a, or a five-year time frame you know the longer the better uh, these are companies that are going to still be around and that are going to be worth more five years from now than they are today. You know, they might not be worth five, uh, more five weeks from now. The short term is sure. always kind of painful when you get into volatile markets like this. Um, but, you know, if you have a little bit of a long term time frame, then, you know, you're, you're, you're going to be good, you know, as long as you don't panic. And what about danger areas right now? Danger areas. I mean, <clears throat> obviously, tech stocks have been really dangerous. Um, you know, I, I would say just about anything that, that's been pegged as, as high growth, um, but also has a high cash burn rate. You know, companies are going to have to get more efficient. You know, they're going to have to to conserve their money, um, you know, to, to be able to maintain the kind of valuations that they've gotten over this past. And if they're not able to, you know, the, and investors just aren't going to value them like that. And uh, I would say, you know, um, these companies that, that really like they don't have positive cash flows, they exist by taking on new investments, by selling new shares, by adding to their debt. It's going to get really tough for them to add debt. You know, debt's going to get more expensive. It's going to get tough for them to sell new shares into a into a market that's that's valuing the company less and less. Um, so, you know, they're going to have to make some really hard choices. And I think investors are going to be looking at that and, you know, are going to be shying away from them and uh, and going towards companies that really that really spin off cash. Okay. So you're looking for profitable companies that are paying dividends right now. Profitable companies, dividend companies, companies that are even uh, even if they're not showing a net profit, as long as they have profits from operations, you know, as long as they can sustain their operations with their with 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 their sales, with their revenues, then they'll be able to make it through just about any tough time. You know, it's those companies that are really, you know, that are pre-revenue that, um, you know, are just sort of an idea and happy thoughts at this point. Um, a, a lot of companies, unfortunately, a lot of companies that went public over the past couple of years are like that. And so there's already been a lot of pain, but I think that there can definitely be some more pain there. Okay. So uh, speaking of dividend stocks, that's kind of the core focus you were telling me uh, when we were talking earlier uh, for your kind of your foundational newsletter, which is the Wealth Advisory. The wealth can, advisory. You, can you tell us a little bit more about the Wealth Advisory? Uh, you know, what, what is the purpose of that newsletter? What do your, uh, your subscribers get with that? 
Sure, I'd love to. I'm super proud of the Wealth Advisory. The Wealth Advisory is what I would call my flagship publication. Um, you know, it is how I want people to be introduced to me that have never met me before, that have never seen my analysis, that have never heard my recommendations. You know, and it's um, it's what I would sort of also call an introductory newsletter. You know, we're we're not trading any options. We're not going after penny stocks. You know, we're investing in relatively large companies that you know they they have a good base. Uh, they're established. Um, preferably, they're spinning off cash in the form of dividends. Uh, we do have a few that are just uh, capital appreciation that, you know, we're, we're looking for those gains from the stocks. But mostly we really stick to just generating income, you know, because uh, time and time again, study after study shows that the best investment strategy is to buy companies that grow their dividends and add to those positions over time. And uh, it's uh, there's sort of an old adage that you're, you're going to do better. Uh, there's the, it's more important to have time in the market than to be timing the market. That's fair. And uh, so that's kind of your foundational publication, and you have three mm-hmm. more. Do you want to tell us about them, maybe starting with uh, – let, let's hit Main Street Ventures last because that's I kind of want to delve into that a little okay. bit deeper, but okay. maybe a, a brief uh, overview of the yeah, other two. Sure, sure. So you've got the Wealth Advisory. That's our introductory one. Um, we're long-term investors there. Um, but I also know that people like to get you know quick gains and do some trading. And now, like I said, I – I don't, I'm not good at timing the market. Uh, I don't think anybody's really great at timing the market. People get lucky here and there. Um, but really, you know, I'm, I'm a believer that, you know, you need to be in the market for a long period of time to make the best profits. But I know that people do want to trade the market. And having worked on Wall Street, I know that there are ways to trade the market that, you know, you can cut out your own emotions and you can really, you know, really just, just dig through all of the noise and filter out everything else and just get down to the data. And that's with algorithms. You know, using computers, um, you, you'll hear them called high-frequency trading algorithms, high-frequency traders, HFTs on Wall Street. But these are the, the the algorithms. They're just computer programs that literally they scan headlines. They look through data, you know, data that's all publicly reported by banks like Morgan Stanley, um, by, uh, you know, brokerage firms like E-Trade and Fidelity. And they sort of scan through all of this stuff, and, and then they're able to act instantly. You know, so they can, you know, they can, they can, they can, they'll call it sort of scalping a profit. And it's like they get, you know, maybe a 1% profit. But because they know that they're going to get that 1% profit, they can put a billion dollars behind it. Sure. And 1% on a billion dollars is real money. And so obviously we can't be putting a billion dollars behind our trades, but you know, we have the advantage of having somebody who worked behind the scenes there, um, you know, and, and sort of learned about these algorithms, learned about the strategies that went into developing these. Because when it comes down to it, they're computer programs. So they're really only as smart as the person who developed them. So this is some traders, you know, this, a, a trader figured all of this stuff out. You know, people figured this out, and then we figured out how to program it into computers. And that's what a lot of these big banks like Morgan Stanley, uh, big hedge funds like uh, Ken Griffin Citadel, that's how they make their big money. And that's how they make so much money trading and not just holding stocks for the long term. So I have Alpha Profit Machine. And that's my algorithmic trading service. And uh, I would call it swing trades. You know, we're not trading every day. uh, But about every week, um, uh, the algorithm brings us some new trades. It focuses on small cap companies. Um, So basically companies that make up the Russell 2000 index um, would be a good... uh, It's a good universe for us to pick from. 
Um, we, uh, we have a maximum of 10 positions in the portfolio. Uh, and sometimes we, we have fewer than those positions filled. If the market's really, really bearish, honestly, right now is very impressive. The portfolio is full. Uh, we have 10 stocks and they've been going up while the market's been going down. So the machine's really been doing a good job. Um, you know, it's been taking out emotion. It's brought some trades to me recently that I've questioned, but I've learned not to question. Sure. Uh, not to question the machine, you know, so. Uh, so just just to clarify, you have you have coordinated basically with someone who does quantitative analysis. Yes. Or coordinated with the, with developers, with the people who develop the actual, okay. the actual and you, algorithms. And you kind of maybe you give them the parameters that you want? Exactly. Or? We work to de- together to develop the parameters, um, you know, them from their experience in developing these systems for big banks and hedge funds and me from my experience working at the big banks and funds. What um, are some of the, like, you know, most important parameters in, in that? I mean, obviously, really, you, I don't want you to I would reveal the everything. the biggest but. thing that we look for is, um, is the flow of money. Right. Is the money flowing into the stock or out of the stock? Okay. And, you know, that's something that you can tell if you dig into the data, but it's, it's a little bit tough, you know, if you're just looking at, you know, your brokerage window um, on Fidelity. You know, you can see volume there, but you don't know, is that volume coming into the stock? Is that volume buying the stock because it's excited? Or is that volume getting out of the stock because it knows something bad's about to happen? And so really being able to tell where, whether the flow is going in or out, like that's a, that's a huge determinant. And that's really helpful um, for, for our algorithm. Okay. And earlier you were talking about uh, a long-term view on stocks. So that makes me think of your uh, Future Giants service, which uh, to my understanding, it's essentially you're looking for, you know, tiny companies today that are going to, you know, in five to 10 years be these, you know, massive corporations that you think are going to kind of take over, you know, major industries. No, I mean, you really nailed it with that one. I mean, it's just as if, um, you know, we're sort of looking for for, uh, Tesla when it trades as a penny stock. Or you hear people talk about, um, you know, if you had invested in Apple when it first went public at 47 cents. Well, Apple actually went public at like $18. Um, but, you know, through all of its splits, you can get it down to that. But we're really looking for Apple at 47 cents. Sure. Um, you know, and there are a lot of opportunities out there um, for companies like that. You know, they're, they're small companies. You know, they've raised money. They, they've grown themselves privately. They've listed themselves publicly. But because of their small size, they can't get analyst coverage. Uh, big banks like Morgan Stanley just can't invest in them. But that gives us as retail investors that opportunity where we can invest in these companies before they can. And so then when these big banks come in to invest in the companies, you know, we're able to basically ride the wave that they create instead of them riding the wave that we create. And so it's kind of nice. It's uh, it's getting positioned before you know, before the guys that I used to work with on Wall Street. And these guys would love to get positioned in some of these companies, but there are literally rules forbidding them from doing that. Like you take Warren Buffett, I'm sure he would love to get into some of the companies we have in the future giants portfolio, but Berkshire Hathaway is not allowed to invest in anything that small. Sure. It's, it, it would be negligible to their, you know, their top line anyway, yep. right? Yeah. That makes sense. All right. So let's, let's shift to, uh, you know, I think what is probably one of the more interesting things that you're doing right now, and that is the, uh, you know, private equity investing for Main Street investors. You don't have to make over $200,000 a year. You don't have to have more than a million dollars in net worth. Nope. Uh, there, I actually, I don't know. There was a law that passed a couple of years ago. You can give us some more detail on it, but basically that has opened these doors. And, uh, you know, the law itself is not brand new, but this industry is 
is fresh. Oh my God, it is. It's really in its and, nascent stages. And um, most people have no clue about it. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about the, you know, the reggae deals and definitely, definitely. I think it's great that we, uh, that we're following future giants with this too, because future giants, we're looking for publicly traded companies that are about to be giants. But with main street ventures, we take it a step further back and we're actually investing in private companies before they hit the stock market. You know, so we're looking for, you know, we want to be those people who, who, uh, help, help Jeff Bezos fund Amazon. You know, those people invested at a $20 million valuation. Amazon's a multi-trillion dollar company now. Like, they made so much money. And none of them really put in much money to begin with. I, I think that, um, you know, that it's not a public round, but Jeff Bezos has sort of commented that, yeah, everybody put in about like 10000 bucks. you know? Yeah. So they put in about $10,000 at a $20 million valuation, and every single one of them is a billionaire. $10,000 made them a billionaire. Yeah, so you can make money in the stock market, but if you really you want to make money in the stock market, generally speaking, for those like massive returns, you're going to want to get in before oh, definitely. shares definitely. are publicly. Like, the stock market is a great equalizer. You know, everybody can get the same percentage gains, but private investments, you know, private investments have been kept off limits to retail investors for a really long time. You mentioned, you know, not needing to make $200,000 a year. It's actually more now, $250,000 a year, not needing to have a million dollars in liquid net worth. And that's what you had to have to invest in these private companies. You literally had to already be rich in order to get rich. And it, it was, it was, these were laws that were written back when the SEC was first created. And these laws were written by uh, John Kennedy's dad, Joe Kennedy, who was a trader who played fast and loose uh, back in the 1920s and lost a whole bunch of money in the financial collapse. And so when FDR called him and said, hey, would you like to write the rules for investing? He was like, I would love to. Sure. And yeah. I'd love to make sure nobody else gets to join this club. You know, so they've kept us out of it for for, you know, nearly 100 years now. Um, but uh, it was actually uh, some legislation that was sort of slipped into the Jumpstart Our Businesses and Startups Act. And it basically allows any American um, over the age of 18 with an Internet connection to invest in uh, in startup companies. So we can invest in these private companies before they go public. We can get the opportunity to be the people that help Elon Musk fund the next Tesla, uh, to help Jeff Bezos fund the next Amazon. And the real reason that I started this is because, yes, this industry, it's open to retail investors. You honestly do not need my help at all to invest in it. But one, companies don't call retail investors looking for funding. They call me looking for funding, though. And two, companies don't always tell you exactly what you want to hear. You know, they tell you what you need to hear to get your money and to get you to invest. But they might hide some stuff in the details that, you know, a normal person, somebody without a background in finance, somebody who doesn't read SEC filings on a regular basis would miss. You know, so that was really what the, 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 my impetus for starting Main Street Ventures was that I was looking at a lot of these different deals out there and I was really digging into them and reading them and I would be like, wow, like, look at this. These people are going to put up 1% of the money for this company and they're going to own 99% of the voting rights. And then these other people, these retail investors, they're going to put up 99% of the money to get this company going and they'll own 1% of it. Sure. Well, so you were talking <laughs> about, you know, the laws that were put in place with accredit, you know, accreditation. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the initial rationale behind that was that, you know, retail investors aren't sophisticated enough. They're not smart enough to make these mm -hmm. decisions. So the government was going to protect yep. them yeah. from themselves kind of thing. Yep. Uh, yep. And I think the value that, you know, you're able to give your readers and your subscribers is the curation aspect. You're able to filter through the noise because, the, you know, it's not that 
investors aren't sophisticated enough. No. But it's that a lot of people just don't have the time to be looking through these things. Don't and also have the time. The, and, and these companies, you know, they try and they definitely try and hide it, you know, as best yeah. they can. You know, they don't want bright red flags popping up when somebody looks at it. So, you know, you really need the time. Uh, you need the training uh, to, to really to, to spot this stuff. But you're right. They, they, they say retail investors aren't sophisticated enough. And, you know, they, they were going to protect us from ourselves. And, you know, God bless them for, for wanting to protect us from ourselves. I really appreciate that. But, you know, we don't need that. Uh, you know, I don't need somebody to determine my risk tolerance for me. And I doubt anybody that's listening out there needs somebody to tell them what their risk tolerance is. You know, like they, they, they put on their seatbelt when they get into their car, you know, or they don't. And it's their choice. <laughs> That's fair. I mean, I, I agree with that sentiment for sure. Uh, roughly speaking, how many deals are you giving, are you passing on a year? So we aim to give out at least 12 investments a year. Um, we, we really like to have one a month, um, but unfortunately the market just doesn't work like that. Sure. You know, sometimes you have a whole slew of deals come in that are all looking really good and you'll get, you know, three in a month. But sometimes you'll have a couple of months where the only things that come across my desk are those deals that you know, I just would not feel good recommending to somebody. You're not going to force any garbage down. down no, exactly. Throat, exactly. And that's one of the things that, you know, I've made very, very clear to, to the investors that I work with is that, you know, we're, we're not, you know, I'm not just going to put a, a deal out there so that they can have a deal to invest in. I want them to have the best deals. That's why I started this company. Like, that's why I started this service. That's why we run Main Street Ventures is so that we can really cut through the bad stuff and give them the best opportunities. And I've definitely, I think personally, I'm a little bit biased, obviously, but I think that I've shown the value in that, um, you know, every single deal that we have invested in, that we've exited, we've exited for a profit. Um, I'd say about 50% of the deals that we're currently in right now where the companies are still private, those companies are now raising more money at a higher valuation. So we're looking at a profit already. One of those companies, you know, um, I, I want to say about six months after we invested in it, it was able to use our money to get started, um, you know, to really start its, its uh, start building, building out its um, properties. And it was able to go and raise more money at seven times the price that what we paid to get in. So this company hasn't even gone public yet. And we're already, already at a 7X or 6X. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. And, you know, this one, I, I honestly, I think this one's going to be really incredible. I think everybody's going to be super happy. But this is going to be one of those. Uh, this could be one of those storybook things where people write a check for $10,000 and get a check back for $2 million. So we were talking earlier about the the market kind of being real volatile right now. You know, at the time of this recording, things are everything is looking really scary. Yeah. Uh, and that kind of got me thinking about, you know, these private deals that are essentially completely isolated from mm -hmm. all that volatility that's going up and down. And, uh, you know, do you want to speak to that a little bit more, like in, in terms of like, you know, where you're allocating your assets and how how does an outside market crash affect these private investments? Does it have an impact or is that isolation like is it completely just kind of separate from the market? Oh, definitely. Definitely. So, I mean, it can definitely have it can sort of have an impact, um, not in the way that most people would think. Uh, so a market crash will definitely have an impact on the, the private sector in that private companies are going to want to stay private. You know, they don't want to go public into a bad market, you know, when people are, are scared to, to try new things or to, you know, bet on sure. the new IPO. So it might prolong your exit. So it will definitely, you know, it can definitely prolong exits. 
But it can also send some of that money that's coming out of the public markets into the private market. So it can be a really good time for companies to actually mm. raise funding. You know, so we may see, um, you know, we, we may see more companies, you know, more opportunities, more, more potential deals uh, so that, you know, these companies can really can raise the money, can get themselves to scale, can, um, you know, weather the storm. And then once everything's over, just really be off to the races. Um, but one thing I love about them is that they're not losing value. You know, you wake up in the morning and you see your portfolio down 10, 15 percent because, you know, one of your stocks just got hit by 25 percent. That doesn't happen. That does not happen. None of these companies, none, none of our investments have moved at all. You know, they haven't gone, they haven't gone up, but they haven't gone down. Yeah. And, you know, when the markets are just plummeting, losing less is definitely winning. You know, losing nothing at all is amazing. All right. So walk me through. If I'm, let's say I'm a, I'm a member of Main Street Ventures, you got, you have someone call you up for a deal and uh, you, you like it. You, you, you read through it. You love mm -hmm. the deal. What do I see? How is that communicated to me as a member? What do, what's the experience like for me? Okay. Okay. So, um, you know, I, I send out weekly updates, you know, just on our, on our active investments, just to let everybody know where they are. I'm constantly talking to the CEOs and the founders and everything. But when we actually have a new investment, I send out a special alert that's uh, called a deal dispatch. And in the deal dispatch, what I do is I break down just everything that I've learned about the company, you know, from reading through their SEC paperwork, um, you know, from looking at their audited financials, from talking to earlier investors. Sometimes I'll talk to the angel investors that help the company get to the point where they're ready to, to raise money from us. Um, you know, I'll talk to the founders, talk to the executives, really look into the actual, you know, the, the market that they're trying to address. And I'm going to basically explain all of that in what I feel are easy to understand terms in the deal dispatch, you know, um, I try and break it down as simple as possible. I'm not going to use esoteric finance language. Sure. You know, you're not going to be reading a whole bunch of acronyms and stuff like that. Um, you know, just really like this is this is why I like the company. And what I'll do is I, I, I work with what I've called a timer system uh, where we look at the team, the idea, the market, uh, the execution and roadblocks. You know, because you need a good team, but you also have to have a good idea. Um, you've got to have a market to sell that idea into. And it needs to be a relatively big market if you want to make billions of dollars. Um, you, you've got to be able to execute. You know, you can't just have all of that, all of the, a great idea and a big market. And then if you don't execute, you're not going to get anything. And then roadblocks. You need roadblocks. Um, you need roadblocks to keep competition from coming in. You know, say you're a... Uh, you're a small company and you've figured out this, you know, great new way of doing things. What's to keep uh, a company like Amazon, who's got tons of cash or, or Facebook or Tesla or whomever from just, you know, um, just just replicating what you're doing? Gotcha. You know, so you're like looking patterns. for a, a wide moat, basically. Definitely a very wide moat. That's a good that's a better way to put it than roadblocks, probably. But we're also looking for potential roadblocks that the company might run into. Sure. You know, and is the company looking into that? Have they done their, you know, strength, weakness, opportunity, threat analysis is, um, you know, are they are they sort of, you know, planning for perfection or are they planning for it to be a rocky path up there? Also, one of the one of the most important things that I ask them is what's their, you know, exits plan, you know, because yeah. we, everybody, you don't want to be sitting in a, exactly, you know, private investing is great, but you can only make a profit if you get to exit your investment. And typically that happens through an acquisition or through a public offering on the stock market. 
And I can tell you from watching some of our companies do IPOs that it's it's just so exciting watching a company, being able to sell into an IPO yeah. instead of buy an IPO. Yeah, that must be a beautiful thing. It must it's feel really great cool. when you're doing it. It, it really but is. That actually has me thinking, uh, where are your shares where do you manage your shares? Because obviously I'm not going to go to TD Ameritrade and, and pick up shares of this private company. So where where are these private these retail investors holding their shares? And then when a company, you know, does have their mm-hmm. IPO, does that just automatically get transferred to your, to your account? How does that all work? Well, there are definitely some steps in there, but we try and break it down and make it as easy as possible for people, um, you know, giving step-by-step instructions on how to do it. But basically when you make these private investments, um, the, the shares are typically held uh, by a transfer agent. Um, So the transfer agent just has an account, kind of like a brokerage account, um, but slightly different because it's private stocks in there um, in your name. And then they hold those. And then when the company is uh, is ready to go public, is ready to list its shares in the market, basically what you'll be able to do is take those shares from the transfer agent and deposit them into your brokerage account. You know, and there's just, you know, it's, it's a relatively standard form that pretty much every brokerage is, is going to be like a little bit different, but basically the same. And you'll walk everybody through it. Uh, yeah, and I walk everybody through it. You know, it's really simple. You can either select to just transfer the certain assets in that account or, you know, if those are the only assets in that account, it's even easier because you just check the box, transfer the whole account. And, you know, they can deposit them in there. And then as long as there's no holding period. Now, sometimes private investors will have what's known as a lockup period where for maybe six months after the IPO, they're not allowed to sell their shares. Um, Once that's over, you know, the shares become free trading and it's just like any stock that you had already bought. All right. So we're going to wrap up real soon. But uh, are there any deals that are, you know, in the pipeline that you're really excited about or any any deals that you're kind of holding on to right now that are still open that investors can get into that you think are, are particularly, you know? Oh, definitely. Definitely. We've got a couple of open deals um, that I, I'm really excited about. You know, we, we're investing in a company that has uh, one of the cleanest potash deposits uh, in the world. And it also happens to be in Brazil. What's, where, what's potash? Oh, I'm sorry. I should I should probably get into is it that po- a little Is bit. it potash or is it potash? How do you? Uh, I've always said potash. Yeah. It could be potash. I, I'm not, I don't, I don't I'm know. I'm not sure. You you were actually the first person to ever bring this up to me, so, oh, okay, so I'm okay, going to trust yeah. you. I've always said potash. Um, yeah. I could be completely wrong in that. Uh, somebody will have to let us know in the comments if I am. Sure. Um, but uh, so it's part of uh, – it, it, there, there's three basic elements that we – or uh, compounds that we need for fertilizer. And you've got nitrogen, um, phosphate, and uh, potassium. And potash is where potassium comes from. And so the um, potassium, it helps – Man, now I'm going back to my botany knowledge here. I, I'm pretty sure it helps in the greening and the ripening, um, so like flowering and stuff like that of plants. But basically, these three macronutrients, you know, our plants can't grow without that. Sure. And between the U.S. and um, and Brazil, you know, we produced a lot of uh, a, a lot of ag products. And so Brazil, the majority of its fertilizer comes from Russia, from Canada, um, from just all over the world. Like most of it doesn't come from Brazil. So this company figured out uh, uh, or ha- found a deposit, you know, a potash de- deposit, and they've been developing it, and it's in Brazil. And their cost to extract the potash is actually less than their competitors' cost to ship the potash. And shipping costs are probably crazy right now. Oh, yeah. And that was back before shipping costs went through the roof gotcha. and, and gas prices were at all-time highs. So it's even higher now. And plus, potash prices have gone up. You know, since we uh, since we invested in it, potash prices have uh, almost tripled. 
you know, so this company, uh, their plans are to um, are to list on a major uh, major exchange in 2023 or 2024. Obviously, market conditions are going to have to uh, sure. determine that a little bit. Um, they're not going to launch right into a full blown recession or crash. Um, but you know, they've got uh, they've they've got this great resource. You know, they've got the cooperation of the government. They've got the um, the friendship and the cooperation of the indigenous people um, that live in the area nearby their operation. You know, they've just done everything right. And, uh, and, and, you know, it's just, it's the perfect opportunity. Um, so that one is one that I'm really excited about. That's an open one that we've, you know, invested in already, but I definitely have a couple of new ones that are coming down the pike that I, I think people are going to be really excited for. And honestly, I think are going to be uh, really great investments. You okay, know? cool. Well, let's, let's be fair to your subscribers and keep that, keep that private. Um, Definitely. Some of them the subscribers don't even know about yet. Jason, thanks for coming on today. Of course. Uh, thanks for having me. So uh, we talked about a bunch of your, you know, your newsletters and stuff. I think what we'll, what we'll probably do is maybe leave a link under this video or to next to it. I don't know exactly where so that, uh, Perfect. you know, readers can kind of, you know, listeners can learn a little bit more about uh, these services and see, you know, which of these are maybe right for them. Excellent. And, uh, yeah, no, definitely. I, I hope everybody checks it out, you know, and uh, honestly, I, I hope I see some new names on my list because I, I'm in this business to help people. So the more people I can help, the better. Awesome, man. Thanks for coming. Excellent. Thanks a lot for having me, Jay. All right.